Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon, here with your Dana Osband. Today's daf, brachot kaf gimel. I promised you, or assured you, that we'd be continuing our discussion to come to a discussion of the bathroom. So we're going to do that now. Somebody who needs to go to the bathroom, somebody who needs to relieve himself, should not pray. And if he does pray, his prayer is an abomination. That's pretty harsh language. His tefillah is only an abomination in the case where he couldn't wait. He couldn't have held off and relieved himself at some later time. If he could wait, then his tefillah is tefillah. It counts. The Gemara goes on to get involved in the details of this, and it's very important to know, and it is, how long do you have to be able to wait to make sure that your tefillah is considered tefillah, to make sure that it counts? Va'ad kama, amrav sheshet ad parsa. For the length of a parsa, how long it would take to go the, um, the distance of a parsa. Somebody who cannot restrain himself, that's what they were talking about in the in the mission of in the Brita to begin with. Pardon me, Brita. It says Tanur Banan. But if he can wait, then he's okay. If he can hold it in, pardon me. Tfilatotfila. Philagamai repeats the same point. Va'adkama, and again ask the question how far? Amaravzvid ad parsa. Meaning what we have here is, and this is perhaps a little bit unusual, although not that uncommon, a rewriting of the same um, point and and caveat, right? But it's rephrased slightly. The Gemara is just representing it because to making sure that they got the Masora right. So the question is, well, was it said this way or was it said that way? And who said which? Then, Amar of Shmuel, Bar Nachmani, Amar of Yonatan, Hanitzrach Linekavav, Hareza lo Palel. So Rav Shmuel Bar Nachmane, Amar Rav Yochanan says, no, somebody who needs the bathroom, somebody who needs to relieve himself, should not pray. Mishum should not mar, he kon likrat elokacha Yisrael. Prepare yourself before the God of Israel. Meaning, you're going to daven before Hashem. So you need to prepare yourself and rid yourself of any side conversations, right? Any thing, anything that could distract you. And what can distract a person from their purpose in, in following through? more than the need to go to the bathroom, right? The, the moment you have to go, and this phrase, right, we know it from childhood, I guess, when you got to go, you got to go. I remember it from the movie Annie, believe it or not. The, the idea is that then that becomes consuming. And how can you possibly focus your entire being towards Hashem in your tefillah if what you're really doing is worrying about when you're going to actually make it to the bathroom? I think anybody who has children, um, certainly when they are in their young stages of, needing a bathroom and not yet being adept at holding it can understand how this can become an all-consuming kind of concern that certainly, certainly can get in the way of tefillah. The one other point I want to make is that as the Gemara goes on here, it's going to talk not only about bathroom issues, but tefillin issues. And can you take your tefillin into the bathroom? And where can you put your tefillin down? And what do you do with your tefillin? And your Dana, you'll talk about you'll talk about those cases a little bit, I know. But I just want to make the important distinction between tefillah and tefillin. The objects of tefillin have a whole set of complications themselves, where can you put them down? These are items, objects of Kedusha. The tefillah issue seems to be much more a matter of how can you focus yourself? It's not about treating yourself with Kedusha as much as recognizing that your tefillah itself is going to be directed to God, and so you need to be able to 
to bring yourself wholeheartedly and wholemindedly into that without being sidetracked by your physical needs or presumably, and I'll infer from this, anything else, right? If you are, and the Hasidim have this, you know, say this most strongly, if you are distracted by other things, if anything is preying on your mind, then maybe you are not in the right frame of mind for tefillah. And so we work very hard, I think, to rid ourselves of whatever distractions. We prepare ourselves for tefillah. We have Pesukah Zimra. We'll get to that later in Masach Brachot or shortly in the next couple of chapters, I guess. We prepare ourselves um, in all different kinds of ways to focus ourselves, to reach out to God. And I think that it's very often, I find it very often like, uh, I, I'm, I'm, wel- I'm welcoming this reminder because so often, um, or too often, I should say, I end up davening on the fly instead of like really sitting down and focusing myself and gearing myself and not being caught up in whatever mundanities, even assuming I've already gone to the bathroom. Yardena. Yeah. I was struck by everything on this page in a way showed me how different life was at the time of the Mishnah and the Gemara. So yes, there, you know, this whole emphasis on like what your frame of mind is when you come to Filah, I feel like our days are just so busy and packed. Um, I'm a perpetual list maker. Um, It drives my husband totally crazy. Um, But I walk around with like a list of like 25 to 30 things to do every single day. I'm working very hard on getting out of that frame of mind because I think it like continues to create this sense of just busyness. And I don't know when often I do find, and I'll confess this, is that like tefillah is something I sometimes almost have to squeeze in as opposed to something that I really take the time to do with a clear mind and a real thoughtfulness. Um, Sometimes I do get there. And here was an example where I almost felt like the Gemara presents what the ideal is in a way that felt very unattainable to me. Um, And that more often than not, I don't think I'm in the right frame of mind. Maybe that's something I really have to work on. So that was one piece. But again, I don't know if that's just part of like how busy our lives are and just that they're, it's full of more stuff. And getting to that, I'll lead to, I was also struck by how um, there was so much talk in this page about what to do with the physical to fill in itself. You know, how do you store them? Can they be attached to your bed? Can you sleep with them? Do they have to be in a pouch? How do you wrap them? Where do you put them? Can you put them in a little place in a bathroom? Can you not put them in a place? Do you put them in a Rashid HaRabim? Do you not put them there? And it must have been, I imagine, that there was not, people probably just didn't own so much stuff. And their tefillin was probably one of their most valuable possessions that you had. I even wonder, did everybody even have a pair of tefillin? So I think some of that is a reflection of how important it was. Now, today it also is. I thankfully have two boys who are of bar mitzvah age and there is this consistent fear as the parent of they will lose their tefillin and leave it somewhere um that's like a theme if they sleep somewhere go somewhere you know did you remember your tefillin do you have it so it's not that we undervalue tefillin but i when i moved a couple of years ago i was very struck by how much stuff i needed in order to keep a traditional Jewish lifestyle, the numbers of sets of dishes, the number of svarim, like there was a lot of stuff that came with, like just actual physical stuff that came along with a commitment to this lifestyle. And I'm really just going to guess there wasn't as much, obviously, there was not that much stuff. It's not a guess, 
but they didn't have books. They didn't have a shot. Exactly. Like they didn't have those things. So like your tefillin was in a way like a manifestation of every, it was like, you know, it was like the ritual object that you had in your home that manifested the commitment to this practice. So it's not that I wouldn't be careful with tefillin today. Of course, anyone who owns spirits tefillin in my house is, but I just, there was something about it that it felt like it was a singular object as opposed to the many objects that fill our homes um, today. And I, I actually really struggled after I moved. I actually spoke to a few, uh, I would say like spiritual mentors, rabbis, figures, that it bothered me how much stuff there was. That it's almost like there was something about it that was not religious to me. And that in a way, would we appreciate more of our stuff if it was like there, where it was like you just had this one singular object that you sort of had to focus all of that on. So I don't know if you have any thoughts about that, Ash. That may just be my own personal thing. And well, I, yes, I think everybody has too much stuff, for sure. On the other hand, I'm not really ready to part with my farm, so. Yeah, I'm not either. That, that's for sure. Uh, the last thing I want to just uh, talk about is this really mind-blowing story that's on the page. So the Gemara on Chaf Gimel Amad Aleph is having a discussion about where you can put the tefillin itself if you need to go to the bathroom. And that there was this idea that there were sort of these holes or ledges, I guess, in a Rashida Rabbim in a public area, and you can put it there. And then they said, no, you actually shouldn't put it there. It's better to take it into the bathroom with you because somebody could actually just come and steal it. And they share the following story. Umasa b'talmid achad shehinich tefillah so there was an incident where a student put his tefillin in one of these holes, okay, in the public domain. And a prostitute came and took them. And then she enters the Beit Midrash and says, Do you see what this person gave me as payment? When the student heard this, he he basically, he went to the roof and he fell and he died. Now, it's not clear if he fell intentionally, if he fell because he was in shock, if he committed suicide uh, because of the embarrassment of all of this. And at that moment, right, they made a takana, they instituted that from now on, people should always just hold the tefillin in their garment or in their hand um, and hold on to it so that this type of situation would not happen again. So this story to me was amazing. We jumped from sort of all these mundane situations of where do you put it? How do you put it? How do you wrap it to this story that involves, uh, you know, someone leaving it in a public place, which seems to be what the common practice was. And that is Zonah, that this prostitute came up with this plan. And there's no motivation given why she would think to do this. I'm very interested in what the motivation would be. Comes in and basically says, you know, look how this guy paid me. He, he took his tefillin in order to pay me for my services. And then the student doesn't even speak, is not even willing to defend himself. And I don't know, that bothers me also, because it says something like, why couldn't he speak up and say, like, you know, this isn't true. This isn't what happened. Wouldn't he have been believed? 
Or was it that he almost knew he did something not right by leaving it in a public place and in a way was blaming himself that he somehow caused this situation? Um, and then also looking again, I mentioned it before, the language of I think they leave it very, very uh, ambiguous what exactly happened. Did he go to the roof to run away and accidentally fell because he was so upset? Did he purposefully jump to his death? We just don't know. And then to see that the halakha changed because of one incident that must have been so dramatic and, you know, actually so devastating to everybody around that they realized like they actually had to institute, you could no longer leave your tefillin in a public place. It was better to bring it in the bathroom with you than to avoid a situation like this. And I don't know, maybe this was at a time where there was a lot of antagonism towards people who were learning in the Beit Midrash. And that's why this person thought to embarrass the student this way. Uh, and any thoughts on this story? I mean, I'm with you that it's, you know, very dramatic and um, amazing. I think that's a very good word, amazing story, because first of all, I mean, there's a prostitute wandering into the Beit Midrash and nobody's got any problem with that, right? Meaning her identity is clearly known. Nobody's grilling her. What are you doing here? And, uh, you know, did he actually spend time with her well he seems to have because again he doesn't defend himself he never says get get out of here like the whole thing of it the backdrop of it is very strange to me what was what were their norms really and then and again i it, it strikes me that everybody recognized that something must have been really really wrong if he they, they related to his death as the outcome of this uh, of this placement of the tillin or the leaving of the tillin right meaning they changed the policy because whether because of the embarrassment or because whatever it is, like the his death shocked them into a new a new approach. Um, but beyond that, yeah, I want I want Rashi. Meaning, you know, I can look at Rashi. They're not really Rashi here, right? Meaning, I I want the the movie version of this story with all of the details. Um, I guess that's prurient curiosity on my part, but the Gemara presents what it needs to for the shift in halacha, right? It's not really giving us the prurient details. Yeah, I it's just a fascinating story and struck me how few the Mepharshim actually don't really comment on the story either. So I don't know if it's just they also had nothing to say because it's just so it's such a bizarre story to have on the page. And I'm not quite sure what to do with it. Well, that is our job for the day. Uh, again, you can find us on all major podcasts. Please leave us a good review. Uh, tell your friends about us. We always look forward to hearing from our listeners. Um, and uh, with until tomorrow's death, uh, we look forward to learning with you again.